Titus 2. This evening we're in verses 11 through 15. Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Lord, We possess so many great truths as Christians. So much to rejoice in. But Lord, we are so grateful for the foundation of any rejoicing, and that is that you have seen fit to show us grace and mercy. We are so unworthy and undeserving of your favor. We have not in so many ways brought you pleasure and honored your name. And yet, (laughs) and yet, Out of your great kindness and love for your glory, Lord, you have seen fit to take people like us and have called us to be your own and saved us from our sins. And Lord, this is truly amazing grace if there ever was. It's so easy to sing the words of a song like that just because they're memorized and we have them in the back of our mind uh, ready to recall at a given moment. But Lord, when we think about not just the words of that song, but the truth that we come to when we read about the grace of God, Lord, it is amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing that we should be called the children of God. Ah, it just blows me away when I think about how much you have done in saving me. Me here, a rebel sinner against you. Fully hating you. Living my life opposed to you. And if I had my own way, I would go to hell shaking my fist at you the entire way. But Lord, you were not content to allow me to go down that road. And I am always absolutely baffled by that. Joyfully baffled. But nonetheless, Lord, I am in awe. And when we come to a text like we have here in front of us this evening, Lord, oh, I pray, oh, I pray, oh, I pray, oh, I pray, Lord, that 
part of an aspect of this grace would be imparted to each and every one of us because we're aware that we're not going to get everything that this says, Lord, but there is something here for us by way of your instruction that you want us to know about you. That we might be more in love with you and rejoicing in you, Lord, because you are fantastic. Oh, Jesus, minister to our hearts by your spirit tonight through your text, through this sermon. Use it, please, as imperfect as it is for your glory, Lord. In your name, amen. There are, there are very few things that move me the way the grace of God does. I, I remember this text, and one of the reasons why I put a pause last week in the middle of the text and, and didn't finish was because, you know, I kind of want to stay in this a little bit longer. It's a little selfish, I'll admit. But I don't think you'll mind. And if you do, that's fine, you'll get over it. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Now that is a foundational truth if there ever was one. I remember years and years and years ago when I first really started studying the Bible and grappling with theology and understanding the truths of scripture. I went to Bible college and and one of the classes that I had was um, a class on eschatology, and, and I did plan to say this, even though we've been talking a little bit about this before the service. Um, and in, in that class, one of the passages that was pointed out, in fact, I remember us all going outside, and, and because it was a very dispensational, premillennial, pre-trib kind of school, that we all went outside and we stood up looking at the sky, awaiting and expecting the Lord's return. And we were all supposed to say phrases about the rapture from the scripture. And so every passage, anybody could, you know, wring out like a towel full of water and get any drop of the rapture out of people were doing that and quoting that. Uh, but the, 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 the passage to prime the pump to do that was verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that's a good truth. And I do wait for him. And there are even times where I still, you know, I'm walking somewhere and I look up at the sky and I do think that phrase, perhaps today. And I don't think of it in the same way because I certainly think the Lord's second coming is going to be the time where we're with him. I don't think there's a bifurcated two comings and a secret coming kind of thing. But that's neither here nor there really. The point is, is that we are waiting for the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ. And why? Why are we waiting for that hope? Or maybe a better question for you is, are you waiting for that hope? Is it something that you're looking and longing forward to? Is it something that you long for with anticipation? 
Is there something in your life that you're like, oh Lord, don't return until this happens. Boy, I've heard that in so many contexts. It's usually in the context of people who got want to get married. Sorry, Arthur and Sarah. (laughs) It's usually in that context. Lord, return, but wait till we're married kind of thing. Or something else, or they want to move to a new house, or this or that. Very, you know, very us-centered kind of thinking. But what causes us to wait for that? The foundation, really, for everything that we're looking at here is the grace of God. Grace. You've, You've heard... Clever little acronyms to help you remember what grace means. And I'm not going to say that they're worthless or you shouldn't have those memorized. You know, God's riches at Christ's expense and that kind of thing. Those are helpful and those, those are good. The reason why the grace of God is so absolutely powerful is because we are so absolutely destitute apart from God. And really, if we don't have a proper understanding of the depravity of ourselves apart from Christ, then not only does the grace of God have a minimal influence in our lives, but things like the second coming of Christ isn't near as glorious as it's made out to be in the pages of Scripture for us. How is the grace of God such an amazing thing? Well, If you look, for example, at Romans chapter 1, look there with me at Romans 1, if you will. Beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The Bible says in the book of Genesis chapter 6, as a commentary on why he needed to bring the flood, that the thoughts and intentions of man's heart is only evil continually. And here in the pages of Romans 1, if we continue to go further, and in Romans 2, culminating in the beginning of Romans 3, we find a very similar description of mankind. It's that we are utterly and completely depraved. None seek after God, no, not one. All are hopeless, all are laid in the place of despair before a holy God. 
we deserve his judgment. Every single one of us in this room and whoever listens to this has suppressed the knowledge of truth in unrighteousness, has turned their back on the living God and walked on their own path in their own ways and you know it. And the reason I can say that about every single person is because you have guilt. You have shame. You know that you have violated God's holy standard. And the the ending of this passage, look in verse 32, it says, Though they know God's righteous decree, and that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We know we deserve death. We know that we deserve it. And I don't need to persuade you right now because you know in your own heart, and your own mind, you know the depravity of yourself. So when we come to a passage like this in verse 11, four of Titus, I'm back in Titus now, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, that is a truth <coughs> that we wrestle with over and over and over and we should rightly so how can a good and righteous and holy god take somebody who is a rebel sinner deserving of death and god's punishment and show me grace how does that happen it's for god's glory it's all for god's glory you know that right Further on in the book of Romans, in chapter 11, chapter 11, let me sum up real quick so we don't read the whole chapter, because I'm tempted to do a little bit of that right here. But summing up is the whole gospel fulfilled in the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles. Romans 9, 10, and 11, that's what it's all about. God saving both Jews and Gentiles in one covenant, in one people, under the one person, Jesus Christ. And he concludes by saying, I say it like this. Oh! The depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who's given a gift to God that it might be repaid? For from him, through him, to him are all things, to him Be glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. You see, the great glory of God is at stake in the salvation of His people. His judgment is sure. God will be glorified in the judgment of rebellious sinners. No doubt about that. That from the very point of the fall and those who were born into Adam, they are destined for that path. They are destined for judgment and destruction. And the real absolute glory is that God would take some of those people destined for his righteous judgment and instead of showing them justice, show them mercy and grant them his grace. 
that God, when he looked and at whatever point, I don't know what it is, so don't ask me the sublapsarian, infralapsarianism question. If you don't know what that is, good. Sorry I brought it up. I don't know when that happened, when God determined he was going to save me in eternity past. Before his planning of the gospel or after or anything in between, I don't know. And you know what, frankly, I'm not that caught up and concerned about that because I'm frankly caught up and concerned with the fact that I'm in his grace. That I am saved, that I have been born again, that I have a new hope in him. That God saw fit to take me in my trespasses and sins, my heart of stone, the wretch that I was. I was a bad person. And he said, no, you are mine. And at that moment, that one time in my life took out my heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, and I was born again. Oh, I love that phrase. I understand that phrase. I praise God that he has caused me to be born again because I have no hope apart from his grace. And him saying, no, Pat, you are no longer going to endure my judgment. My judgment for you was poured out on Jesus Christ. And he bore all of the wrath that I deserved. He bore the judgment. God judged Jesus and treated him as if I, he, pardon me, had lived my sinful, wretched life. All my sins. Now, I don't know which is worse, the ones I committed before I was a Christian or those I still commit now that I am a Christian, knowing full well who Jesus is and what he's done for me. But you know what? I am partially sanctified at best. You guys get that, right? You guys still sin too. And we are grateful that the grace of God has saved us not just from past sins, but current sins, and even those sins we haven't yet committed that are still in our future. The grace of God has appeared That's a marvelous phrase. Not even a full sentence. We could put a period there, but it's not. The grace of God has appeared. It appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, there was a long time where it hadn't appeared yet, and lots of prophets looked forward to the time where Jesus was going to come. Right? Peter tells us about that. How they longed to look into the things that they were prophesying themselves, but they knew because God had told them and showed them that it wasn't for them, but a time that was yet coming. Now, God has saved them from their sins as well in bringing this salvation for all people. And we looked at what that meant last week. So if you don't remember, it was all of the kinds of people that he refers to. Men, which would have been perfectly understood in that day and age, but also women, young women, children, and slaves. Salvation is not exclusive for a particular special group of people, namely just men or women or Westerners or Easterners or whatever it is, we know that we can share the gospel anywhere in the world and that God is going to save his people, right? Revelation chapter 5 says, there's John's beholding the throne of God and he's just in awe of the things he's seen, struggling with language to explain what it is he's seeing. 
There are people there who are before the throne of God in worship from every language and people and tribe and tongue and nation. So we're not confused and nobody's left out. The gospel will bring people to salvation from anywhere in the world, anywhere we go, wherever we preach. God will have his people saved. But what does this grace do for us? It trains us. And this is kind of where we put a pin in it last week is here in verse 12. But let's look at it. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God trains us. Now, this is vastly different from so many, in fact, I want to say all of the other world religious systems that are out there. I'm taking a world religions class right now in my college, and as I'm going through it, it's, it's interesting that the very first, well, maybe second or third thing that comes up in every single one of these religions is the works people have to do to merit salvation. It's universal. Every religion we've looked at has had a works-based situation, meaning that you... In order to attain something, a higher level of consciousness, you, you a better place in your next life, or to attain favor from God, Allah, or whatever other religion that you could be involved with, it is all workspace. But here, look what it says. The grace of God trains us. It's very different. The reason we do good is not because we feel like we have to earn favor from God. We have earned all the favor from God. We are going to earn, not because of our own works, but because of Christ's works. You see, he earned that favor for us, and the grace shown to us now motivates me to work for the Lord and want to live a godly life. Now, you see, I want to do what's right because of the grace he's shown to me, not because I have to out of duty and obligation. It's a joy to serve. This is why Christ can say to people who are listening to him, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The reason it's light is because he is yoked to you and he bears the weight of it. And you're just long for the ride. So the grace of God trains us to renounce these things. Look what it says. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled and upright godly lives in the present age. We renounce the ways of the world. We renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, if we look back in Romans chapter 1, in verse 28 it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers, 
haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now that by no means is the only list in the New Testament of ways that the world lives, but it's certainly an informative one. It's one that has a lot of things in it so that I don't think there's anybody who could read a list like that and go, ha, I've never done any of those things. Hot diggity. We have proclivities and propensities. And as long as we're still in these bodies, these tents, as Peter calls it, there's going to be a fight within us to go back to our default ways of living, right? Our default way is like this. Haters of God, strivers, boastful, haughty, not obedient to parents, and all of the things that are contained in here. We could go back to the Ten Commandments, either in Deuteronomy or in Exodus, and look through those lists and see, boy, we fail in each one of those points as well. We could go to the Sermon on the Mount, and point by point by point, Jesus is going to deconstruct our self identity and reveal to us what our identity really is in the light of God. We could go to 1 Corinthians and see a similar list that Paul lines out here. In fact, we can go all throughout the Bible and see that we fall short. And what we do is we know that that's where we're going to go if we are not influenced by something greater. And that's the grace of God. You see, as Christians... We now have a power to live over our default settings. We now have the Spirit of God who not only enlivens us and strengthens us, but illuminates the Scripture for us. And so there might be a time where you read a text and it really doesn't mean much to you, and you go through and you find something else the Lord deals with. You come back a year or two later and read that same text, and all of a sudden that's convicting you of sin too. Or a new way of living, or a better way of thinking, or just reaffirming a position that you're already in. And so what do we do? We need to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's all the things we just read there. So lest we think it only applies to certain people, no, this is still areas where we struggle. Covetousness, faithlessness, maliciousness, gossips, envy, pride. See, all of these things are still attributes that we really do need the Lord to deal with us in. And so the grace of God teaches us to renounce those things. How does it do that? Christ has already saved me from all of those old sins, the sins I'm living now and the sins of the future. So why do I want to continue in such things? To live self-controlled and upright and godly lives. So this is the opposite of the way the world lives. First of all, self-controlled. Remember, every single person that we looked at in terms of a category earlier in the chapter was called to be self-controlled. Old men, old women. Young men, young women. Slaves and pastors are all called to live self-controlled lives. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Right? Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and 
self-control. Against such things there is no law. Again, Romans chapter 1 says in verse 24, in light of the fact that people exchange the glory of God for images that resemble mortal things and they worship creatures rather than the creator, this is what God does. A lot of times, let me pause for just a sec. No, let me read it and then I'll tell you. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since, verse 28, since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. We think that the wrath of God is bad things happening to you. How many times have you thought that? You committed some sin somewhere along the line and then something bad happens. And you, in your mind, correlate the two. It could be something ridiculous as a flat tire. It could be something just absolutely huge, like a strife with your spouse. It could be all kinds of things. But oftentimes we equate the things we do with a bad thing that happens to us, right? Now, while I guess that can be true, more oftentimes this is the way the Lord reveals his wrath, especially against unbelievers, And especially in our context against the world, which is why we want to be self-controlled. Because one of the ways God manifests his wrath is he lets people get what they want. He gives them over to their desires. He says, okay, you don't want to follow me? Then he releases some of the restraint that he has had upon their lives and allows them to get worse and worse and worse and worse. I mean, on a big scale, I think we can honestly say we see that happening in our country today. Where because on a large grand scale, people have turned their backs on the Lord, we see the Lord letting people do whatever they want to do and letting them follow after their desires and their baser impulses. So as Christians, we are not to live in such a manner. We are to live in a manner that is self-controlled. I'm living in a way where I am not only to the best of my own ability, but as the Lord gives me strength to living in a way that is disciplined and controlled. And I'm not just following whatever freaky passion or desire or guttural impulse comes into my head or into my gut, I guess. But I don't live that way. We don't live that way. We live self-controlled, upright lives. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he talks to the Thessalonians and he says, you know how we lived among you. You know how that when we were around you, we lived in a way as if we were father and you are, we were fathers and you were our children. <clears throat> we lived in a way that was dignified and godly and upright. As we do this in this present age, we are living counterculturally, meaning that we're going to buck against much of the world that exists today. It's going to be hard in a lot of ways. It's going to be difficult. But it is worth it because we've already received this grace from God. Think about it. 
God has shown us this grace, this favor, this mercy, this compassion that we absolutely don't deserve. Why in the world would we want to go back and live lives in a worldly way? Why would we want to go back to the things and piddle around in the mud when we have, as C.S. Lewis says, a holiday at the beach in front of us? When we have the greatest thing available to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, if we are not living lives that are um, informed and founded on the grace of God, we are not going to be waiting for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You're going to be living for the next day. You're going to be living for the weekend, as the, some famous song somewhere someday once said. But we are waiting actively. We are influenced by Jesus Christ so much that we are waiting for his second coming because that's our blessed hope. My hope is not in the fact that I'm going to have a fat retirement uh, thing someday. Now that might be good and wise to invest. Don't get me wrong. Right? Not saying sell all your stuff and let's go wait up on the hill, you know, kind of thing, like the cults of old. Don't misunderstand me. But certainly the motivating force in my life shouldn't be that the end is me sitting fat and pretty in some mansion somewhere as I go out and tend to my goats or whatever it is. My hope, now that might happen and that's not bad, but my hope is not there. My hope is in the fact that when I am done with this body, when this tent is torn asunder from me, that I will be absent from it and present with my sweet, sweet Jesus. Gosh, I love Jesus. Now I'm, oh boy, I'm in danger of going down a rabbit trail, so I won't do it. But I love Jesus. And oh, I, I, I hope if nothing else gets heard tonight, I hope that you just love Jesus. That you're just enthralled with him and bananas for him. I love my wife. And I tell my kids this, but you need a guy who loves Jesus more than he loves you. And I'll tell you what, I love my wife more than anybody else in this world. Sorry, people, but I do. But I love Jesus even more than I love my wife. And I think she would agree that that's what makes me a good husband to her. So how do I renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? Christ is my passion. Christ is what I long for. Christ is what I desire. How can I live self-controlled and upright life? Because Christ is who I'm waiting for and longing for. So verse 14, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ died not to get you into his heaven. We're waiting for that. That's my hope, right? That's my blessed hope. I can't wait to get to heaven. But if it's heaven without Jesus, is it heaven? If it's heaven and you get a perfect body, but it's without Jesus, is it heaven? If it's heaven and you have a sweet place to live right next to the golf course, and you don't have Jesus there with it, is it heaven? No, you see, Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. 
Jesus and his presence and me knowing my Savior and me being with him, me seeing him as he is, that's what makes heaven heaven. And so he redeemed me not just to get me into his heaven, but he redeemed me to get me fit for heaven so that when I'm in heaven, all I want is Jesus in heaven. That's what he's doing in me right now. He's preparing me for the sweet taste of glory. Thankfully, he's doing it incrementally because I would be a puddle on the ground if it was an all at once kind of thing. But he is. But this is why he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. He wants me. Crazy talk. He wants me. And he's going to cleanse me. He's going to redeem me from all of my lawlessness, purify me. And in that purification comes a zeal, a passion, a fervor, a hunger to do good works. I am not the person that I used to be, praise God. And I don't think anybody here would say that they are the people that they used to be either. That as God saved us, he didn't stop there, but he's continued to do his work. Listen to this wonderful passage. We all know because we've all been to weddings. We all know because we've all maybe been to premarital counseling or marriage counseling. We all know because Ephesians 5 is one of the, the places where we are often referred to. It says, husbands, verse 25 No, let me back up. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and he is himself its savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in their own husband, to their own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without any spot, without any wrinkle, without any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And then he goes on to say, now this is a great mystery, but his intention isn't just to talk about husbands and wives, but it's to talk about Christ and his relationship to the church. So Christ has a desire to redeem us and to continually purify us, preparing us for that time where we're at home in heaven with him, where we can be absolutely, exquisitely in his presence, in love, in worship, enraptured with all that he is for all eternity. And here that makes me zealous for good works. Because of what the Lord's doing in me, man, I want to do what he calls me to do. I struggle, yes. I don't do the things I want to do. The things I want to do, I find myself not doing. Ah, who will save me from this body of sin and death, right? Romans 7. But it doesn't end there. Romans 8 says, ah, thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ. 
who has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. He has cleansed us from all of this, and now I desire to do these good works, so I want to share the gospel. I want to be a husband who's loving and pleasing to my wife. I want to nurture and cherish her. I want to be a good father to my kids. I want to be, let's go through the text, a faithful employee to my boss. I want to be a good pastor to the church. I want to, I want to, I want to, all because the grace that God has given given to me. Declare these things. I've done that here tonight, I believe. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Positive and negative. Sometimes, beloved, you're struggling and you're weak and you're tired and it's hard and I get it. And you need an exhortation. The exhortation is the grace of God. Sometimes you need a rebuke. Because you are still struggling in sin. And you are remaining in that place of sinfulness. And you know what? What's going to inform you there in that place? It's again the grace of God. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Don't disregard these words. I don't say that just because he ends with that, although that is a helpful way to end this. But don't disregard these words. I am confident that as the word is preached and that the word is given to his people, as, let me just say it, as the sheep are fed, that you will receive the food in the way it's been intended. It will nurture, it will enliven, it will strengthen, it will be vibrancy for your soul. So I would remind you and encourage you as you leave here tonight that if the Lord has given you a word of rebuke in the things that you've heard, that you would repent. That you would allow the grace of God to inform you and that you would fall back more in love with Jesus. If it's been a word of encouragement, then praise God. Go home and pray about that specific thing. If it's just simply a a desire to see him more and more, whatever it is, I encourage you that as whatever word the Lord has spoke to you here from the pages of his word by means of his Holy Spirit, that you would spend the time thinking about that, meditate on that. I don't mean, you know, some kind of Eastern thing. Focus your mind on that thing and meditate. Consciously consider those things. Look up scripture texts that apply to that. And all in all, may you be more in love with Jesus after you've heard this sermon than you were when you started. Amen? Lord, there is so much rich truth here in a text like this especially that we, we could spend a very long time studying it so much. But Lord, I do know that you as you've inspired these words and you've inspired this text that we have here in front of us, Lord, that you would, in each and every one of our lives, apply them in a way that brings you praise and honor and glory. Lord, all of this that we study, we hear, we think about is all about you, Jesus. And if we think any other thoughts or any other things, Lord, please remove those distractions and those thoughts from us. And may we be focused and our minds stayed on you 
and your grace that you've given to us that informs so much of our lives. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.